0: From KVLU Public Radio in Beaumont, Texas, this is Bayou Lands Talks, a companion podcast where we're sharing some of our favorite conversations with a wide range of guests that we've interviewed for the KVLU radio documentary series, Bayou Lands, a program exploring the people and places of Southeast Texas since 2016. I'm Shannon Harris. For this episode, we're sharing a conversation I had with Juan Yo Usadi which first aired on the first episode of Season 5 of Bayou Lands earlier this year. Her memoir of monkey bridges and banh mi sandwiches from Saigon to Texas is an intimate portrait of Usadi's life before and after the fall of Saigon, from exile in the Mekong Delta to refugee camps in Malaysia and the Philippines and ultimately resettlement in Port Arthur, Texas. We spoke via Zoom from her home in Singapore. We hope you enjoy.
1: Good morning.
0: Wow, you're good because it's hard to look outside and say good afternoon. It's nice to see you and and talk to you. I've been listening to your book. How was that process for you? It was very difficult.
1: It was because it's a whole new world that I didn't know anything about. Book narration is, you know, it's an art. It's it's, it's acting. uh, And (laughs) I didn't know any of that. I didn't know that I didn't even know. Because I did it in a little closet in our house, and it was um and there was like squirrels, there's trains, there's rain, and then yeah, but getting somebody to narrate your book is it's it's not easy, and especially this is a book with lots of Vietnamese words, and it's also a memoir. and I guess and all of that, I hope that the listeners would have the the generosity to think that this is um a memoir and whatever faults, whatever lapses I have, it's <laughs> it's part of that journey of getting the story out.
0: Yeah, it's your story. And yeah. that leads me to my first question. What made you want to tell your story?
1: You know, in the Golden Triangle area, there are many Vietnamese refugees, right? And growing up I never thought my story was so unusual because every friend I had, every Vietnamese family member I knew, we all had a story like that. When I was older, I moved away to the Northeast and just even just to Houston to school. I realized that a lot of people didn't know the story, didn't know at all. And I were quite curious to, to see what it was like from a different perspective. Just for small details I shared with people, they were genuinely interested. And so it was late in life that I came to writing. My father passed away and I decided to write a story about him. And um, uh, the story was published, and the editor suggested that perhaps the story might warrant something longer than an essay. Maybe I should attempt a book. And so that's how it came about.
0: How old were you when Saigon fell?
1: I was around four. I don't remember specific details. I remember big impressions, like, for instance, there was an explosion at the intersection of the house. So I, But I do have six older siblings and my parents, you know, so... They, they they talked about that experience, the impressions of those days a lot. And so in writing the book, I talked to them and a lot of the memories are attributed to my talking to them, you know, their memories as well. But what I remember is just mm, a feeling of just uncertainty of just chaos, not knowing what's going to happen. But I did remember very specifically asking my father was huaban or peace meant? Because I, I heard, I started to hear that so much. And he said it meant peace, and he explained it to me, and it sounded very nice. It sounded just something that it just is almost a different world, and I couldn't, you know, I was very excited to see what would happen.
0: And so your family was actually in a pretty good situation before that happened. They, They were entrepreneurs. They were able to save money. But your father had great foresight in knowing how to survive through the changing times, the fall of Saigon. He saw that coming and prepared for the survival of your family.
1: You know, he was, he seemed to always be a few steps ahead to whatever the situations we needed him to be. So after the communists come in, if you, a lot of business people former soldiers were forced to move out of the city. And if you don't, didn't have a place to stay, to go, you would go to these far off places. So we ended up in the countryside. He had bought a piece of land, uh, uh, a small orchard in, in a small rice farming village. And he, he had come before and, you know, built a little hut and set it up. So when we come, it was ready, it could be. And I, I remember he was very determined that we would go to school and you know continue education. But in the countryside, it was hard. It, it was under times were hard. And it was also in the countryside. And we weren't just in the countryside, we were in the really the the boondocks of the countryside. <laughs> and but it was the, the education has always was important to my father, and it continued to be important to him. I think that was one of the driving forces of, of why he uh, we left Vietnam. And when we ended up in America, he really um, made it clear that we should, you know, education is important. And I would say my father, even he was visionary, but he was not alone in the thinking of a lot of Vietnamese who came to the U.S. and to the Golden triangle. This idea that if you work hard, life might not be good for yourself, but... For your children, maybe they have a chance.
0: The promise of communist peace never came, and political and economic instability under the new government resulted in widespread famine and crushing restrictions. What followed was an unprecedented second wave of South Vietnamese refugees fleeing on small, unsafe, crowded fishing boats. When Juan was 11, her family made the risky decision to join them.
1: Yes, I, I was worried about various things on the boat. I, I knew enough to where I knew that this was life or death. This was, you know, there were pirates, there was a storm, that a boat could capsize. But I think, fortunately for me, that feelings of drama it it didn't linger for me over the years, you know. But I know my parents, they weren't dramatized, but I knew it very much stay with them, and it shaped uh, what what they thought about just aspects of life. For instance, I think it made things, you know, we complained about things. My father would always, on my parents would say, you know, but we made it here, you know? So it. I think it gives them a certain resolve, a certain gratitude and resiliency, you know, to accept various other changes.
0: The plight of the boat people compelled the U.S. to pass the Refugee Act of 1980, which eased restrictions on the entry of Vietnamese refugees. Of the 1.6 million Vietnamese boat people, more than 400,000 found asylum in the United States. Juan and her family lived in refugee camps in Malaysia and the Philippines for two years before they were able to join family in Port Arthur, Texas. And there they began a whole new journey as American immigrants.
1: So I came to the U.S. at 12, 12 and a half or something. So for a little kid, you know? I did remember very much the abundance of everything in the U.S., especially food, and it was, you know, especially candies and chocolate. It was just—it's the first time I you could have—I could have as much as I wanted, and that was that—that uh, that was just unbelievable. And then of course, Halloween people would actually give out candies. That concept is just very, very hard to to a kid to understand that people would just give you. They they welcome you, they, they give you candies and then friends' birthday parties, you hit a, something and candies come out. <laughs> they just <laughs> you know, so it was um, so that the aspect of abundance was very good. And I remember uh, we would save everything like egg, carton containers. We just couldn't bear. It. I mean, how could you just give this perfect container just throw to be a one time use, you know? And um, so then we start having a lot of egg carton containers, and after a while, it's uh, <laughs> it would be, you know it, it looked it didn't look right, and I guess that was the slow assimilation into American. Yeah, but I think I think the most overwhelming part was the language because mm-hmm. when you can't communicate, it's really difficult. But all the other aspects, it's only in retrospect that I understand deeply how. Uh, how hard it must have been for my parents, for the older people, for my older sisters, who had to immediately think of jobs and, you know, rent and all that thing on all those things. I was spared of that. And so, you know, and I'm, uh, I think about that often, especially now I'm about my parents age when, when they came to America and how daunting that was. It, I think about that actually all the time. I was overwhelmed, but I would say mostly in the positive aspects, except for the language. The language was hard. But then I had company because everyone around us, nobody could speak English well either. So it was
0: fine. One of the things that I remember from your book is that in Vietnamese, there's no word for grass or lawn. And so sure. you you actually had uh, siblings, older siblings that had come to Texas uh, before you, and they would write letters home about this grass. But in your language, it was weeds, so you were, in your mind, you're thinking Americans have just a, a ton of weeds around their houses.
1: <laughs> very tall weeds that have to be cut every two weeks or every week. And I didn't even know how he went about doing that. I imagined these enormous scissors. <laughs> so when I first saw a lawn, it was very, um, uh, it's, a, it's an explanation that solved, that answers so many questions that built in my, in my head.
0: Juan graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School in 1991 and went on to attend Rice University.
1: I started out, I was thinking I was going to major in engineering, not because my mind went that way or anything, I just wanted something that would offer a job. Yeah, I guess because money was such an insecurity. I just wanted a job, any job where I didn't have to make bun sandwiches.
0: that was a big part of your growing up as well, was your father's sure. opening a store. So tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so, you know, my father, he was always, he was a ever entrepreneur. And so he came here, it was very hard to find work. And, and then after a few years, he wanted, he had this bright idea that this bunny sandwich, French baguette with not weird ingredients, would just be a great hit. And so, and of course, he would sell hot dogs and hamburgers and all those things. He'll be a fusion kind of a, a sandwich stand. Yeah. So, our sandwich shop was in the parking lot of Howard Supermarket. And so, after school, throughout middle school and high school, I would come to the shop and stay with my father so my mom could go home and, you know, make dinner and rest a bit and prepare for the next day. And so, the sandwich shop just informs a lot of my my, my my growing up because just sitting in the shop looking out at the um, uh, Howard supermarket and just observing life in America I just you know it's just I learned a lot different holidays what people do uh, <laughs> and then I had teachers coming to the shop I had I would hide from them, and then, you know, as I got older, I stopped hiding. I even take orders at school when kids would, would actually put orders during class. I said, couldn't we just wait until after? <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, but it, it was hard. We didn't make a lot of money, but it was enough to put us all through school. And um, I didn't appreciate the time, but... Uh, but definitely over the years, it's, I'm glad for that time with my father, you know, what well, we're just forced to be together, not having much to do with a little radio. And sometimes I would listen to American songs and just by repetition, I knew he had heard it like 10, 20 times. I would test him like, do you know this song? And, and <laughs> so I guess in a way I, you know, w- we learned American culture together. <laughs>
0: So do you still have family in Port Arthur?
1: Um, some. We have cousins and, you know, we have some. But all of my siblings have moved away to Houston and Austin and, uh, all the, and even outside of Texas. So I do have uh, lots of friends and cousins still in Port Arthur. And, and I have, you know, I keep in touch with my teachers with Facebook. And so, you know, I know what's going on. And, and it's the Golden Triangle always has a very special place in my heart. You know, and, uh, you know, for a long time, to me, that was America. And so I didn't know that America was anything else. I remember when I was in college, I was telling somebody that was the first time where I really met people from all over the US. I, I didn't know, I, I had no concept of really anything, frankly, outside of the Golden Triangle. And then not only that, and, and at Rice in Houston, people came all over, of course, even internationally. But so I was talking to a student just down the, the hallway. And so I told him that I was going, I'm fixing to go to dinner. And he looked at me, he, I remember he was laughing and I didn't know what's so strange about that. I'm fixing to go to, 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 to dinner, it's very, and he said, wow, you're such a Southern belle. And so, you know, I, I didn't, these expressions that I grew up with, I didn't know they were Texan phrases, but now I hear them. I feel nostalgic, you know, for the place, and it's it's it, it's very nice.
0: <laughs> how do you identify yourself? You're you're living in Singapore now. Do you consider yourself more American, or how do you identify yourself culturally?
1: Yeah, in America, I would say. And a lot of time, I would say, well, I'm Vietnamese, you know. But my husband would correct me, and say, "Well, you American," and I said, "Well, I know I'm Vietnamese American, but but I guess being Vietnamese is make up such a huge part of me. I would say I'm Vietnamese as a way of trying to explain my thinking, my more of my thoughts living that way. I had that in my head until I come to Singapore. And then I would meet lots of other, actually in Singapore, it's a country of many foreign workers, so that people from everywhere, and there are many Vietnamese nationals from Vietnam. And as I talked to them, I became more and more aware that I'm so much more American than Vietnamese. And even the words and the terms that I used, I had a friend, she burst out laughing because I had used the word, the which means if in Vietnamese. For me, I I mean, the word if is if, I mean, it doesn't change with time, but somehow that word, it's a 1980s word, Vietnamese word. And so I realized that I'm not really Vietnamese and truly I'm more American. So I guess being in Singapore, I think really made that clear to me. I guess it's a it's a journey even inside me that uh, that I realized that more and more in the year and a half here. So I guess now if we were to ask, I would say I'm American for sure. Uh, I was born in Vietnam, <laughs> grew up there until I was 12. So I guess there's no uh, short answer. But if you were to force me to say a short answer, it has to be I'm American.
0: Do you still have family in Vietnam? And have you gone back to visit?
1: Uh, Yes, I, I had gone back to visit with my father before I got married, after I graduated college. And then I went back about seven years ago with my uh, family with my holy American family, my Brooklyn born husband and our three children. Both trips were very special to me because with my father, it had been just 10 years after we left and Vietnam was already doing so much better. And we went back to the countryside and it was so heartening for me to see. And with my children and my husband, it was so special in a different way. My children grew up and my husband, since he's met me, has heard all these stories. They go there and the, the stories come alive and that actually I'm not as short as they think. You know, people about my size, same kind of short hair. You know, there are lots of people like that, <laughs> liking the same food. And that, uh, you know, all these crazy stories that I said, uh, there's context to them that it makes, you know, they make sense. I think anybody who is born in a country and went somewhere else where you might minority, there's something about being in a place where... You're just like everybody else. And you speak the same shorthand of food, of culture, of traditions. And like I said, my Vietnamese is not the current Vietnamese. But there's still that understanding. If you say, if you just name one ingredient in a dish, people know exactly what we're talking about. And everybody has the same recipe, that grandmother Meg, that mother meg you know. And you don't have to explain yourself a lot. And there's something very freeing, very just nice about that.
0: So are you working on a writing project now?
1: Yeah, you know, after the book, the first book, I, uh, the memoir, I, I really was thought I was done. I didn't, I, I felt like it was, uh, an important story to tell and I told it. And after that, there's really nothing else to say, but then, um, Life in Singapore, I noticed all these differences and a lot of things you brought up. Like what's it like to be like the identities, all that stuff? You went to be Vietnamese born, grew up America, and now here expat and talking to other Vietnamese national, talking to so many people all around the world. So I started to write down some stories and now I'm thinking. I hope to be able to, you know, to have a book about just life in Singapore and, and a sense of belonging of mine and all the people who are, aren't Singaporeans who are here, making a life, making a living in a foreign land. Where is our place? What is it like to feel a sense of belonging?
0: You said something very interesting in your book uh, when you were speaking about the Vietnamese language. And I think it was when you were speaking about all the many different pronouns or sure. the ways that you can use to describe people, that there's a certain fluidity in identity. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because it may be a concept that most Americans might not understand.
1: You know, I'm really glad you asked that question because I'm feeling it very keenly now. In English, the pronoun is just you and I. In Vietnamese, the pronoun that you use, it, it changes depending who you're speaking to. And this could be age. So if you, if you speak it to somebody who's like your mother's age, then you're the pronoun you for you, you will be the child pronoun, like you you are the child, the person. It sounds strange in English, but it really isn't. It sounds very normal. And then you talk to somebody who's a bit older, like your your older sister's age, then you'll be the younger sister. And then it gets even more nuanced. It could be like somebody who's older than you, but let's say she's older than you, but she's your father's younger brother's child so her the ranking in the family hierarchy she's lower than you so you should use the the youngest sister with her so there are many (laughs) nuances like that and so you know I'm the youngest of seven and my mom is the youngest in her family so all my life I'm always the youngest the youngest sister of the child even among friends I had children a bit younger when I was younger. So I'm also younger than my contemporaries with children about my children's age. But in Singapore, like I said, Vietnamese from Vietnam nationals and all their children are younger and quite a bit younger. So it's the first time that the pronouns have to change. So I'm no longer the youngest sister. (laughs) And I'm shocked when they start (laughs) using and on my mom level. It was very disturbing to me, you know. But then that really made me think about you know th- there's just no denying that's how the majority of the people who see me now is somebody older and it doesn't matter you know how i just have to deal with it so every language has its own complexities has its own beauty and vietnamese doesn't have, have a lot of tenses but has all these the, the nuances and relationships and of, t- of course the tones so to master the Vietnamese language, you really have to understand that relationships between people. And I think that's one of the harder things to get. Language really provides a window into the thinking of a culture, you know, what they values or, or what they think is important.
0: Do you ever think about what your life would be like if your family hadn't left Vietnam?
1: You know, I think about that all the time. <laughs> and. As I mentioned, as I am getting to the age of my parents, when when we left Vietnam, yeah, life would be so different for me. And frankly, not just me, it would be for my husband and and my children. They wouldn't be here, and my husband would have married somebody else. And and I think the biggest thing I come from that is that life could change in an instant, you know? And that uh, all fortune depends on so much so many things and the biggest among them is luck you know we can work hard we can do all that and that gives us hope that something will good will you know something possible come out but ultimately the luck such a big part in that you know and that that it could goes one way it could goes the other way and so um I guess it just gives me more of a um, an understanding for the others around me and that you know the fact that that life is easier for me now is it's yeah it could change and perhaps the person next to me who's having a really hard time not perhaps it is especially so the luck just didn't turn that way it's not because I'm any any more special or anything you know so I think that I that that really sinks into me in Singapore actually that many many migrant workers who work as domestic helpers who work as construction workers you know it's 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 a hard life they send money back. And I could see in another life, it could very well be me, you know, and, and it takes tremendous courage to move to a new country and to take a chance to do that. And I feel incredibly lucky that I'm here not in such circumstances. But it really drives home that it's not because I'm so I did anything extraordinary, just luck really puts me here. Thank you very much for reaching out to me. I I was very happy to you know, I mean, to hear from you, to, you know, this connection, like I said, to the golden triangle, it's, uh, it's almost, it's the genesis of, of our journey in America. And uh, it's the one that's, that stays with me, no matter where I've gone and how many places I've been to. You know, what I think of my first days in America and to me is Texas.
0: I think at this point, you're more a citizen of the world.
1: <laughs> the world's big, Shannon, and I'm a scary cat. <laughs> yeah. I really I think just I feel like I'm a leaf, you know? I I got blown and I if if I land somewhere I make something of it but by myself I'm just not brave enough to just my daughter is at um is in the military. She's at the Naval Academy. And she tells me too, she said, Mom, you know, you've done all these things, but you're you're a scary cat. I said, (laughs) I am a scary cat. I've tried to tell you that my whole life.
0: (laughs) That's pretty phenomenal. You came to the US, you started that journey in a boat. Yeah. And your daughter's in the Navy.
1: Yeah, and she might be, you know, patrolling the same waters, the South China Sea. My being a boat refugee did influence her. You know, just this idea of giving back to America and being of service to the country, that has been so good. She wants to serve, and I tremendously admire her for that.
0: Our thanks to Wan Yu Yusadi for sharing her story for Bayou her memoir of Monkey Bridges and Banh Mi Sandwiches from Saigon to Texas was self-published in 2018, and her stories have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and other publications, as well as the Moth Radio Hour. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to share it and subscribe to Bayou Land's Talks wherever you find your podcasts. You can also listen to Bayoulands Talks on NPR One, along with other podcast offerings from KVLU Public Radio. And join us on social media at 91.3 KVLU Public Radio on Facebook and Bayou Lands on Instagram. Bayou Lands Talks is produced in the studios of 91.3 KVLU Public Radio in Beaumont, Texas, by Shannon Harris and Jason M. Miller. For more information and to stream KVLU online, visit kvlu.org.